Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we have my conversation with Anish Krishna, a partner at McKinsey & Company, about what healthcare organizations should be doing to prepare for the next recession. Later in the episode, in our Fast Five segment, we'll tell you what finance leaders should know about AI. First, though, Rich is talking with Chad Mulvaney about the latest healthcare finance headlines. This is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. Hi, and this is Chad Mulvaney, a director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. First up, it's surprise bill time. Healthcare legislation is again advancing in Congress, this time in the House Ways and Means Committee, which released a bipartisan draft of its legislation, which in contrast to other bills in other committees would use an open negotiation process and not set payment rates. So, Chad, what should our, our listeners know about the lay of the land on surprise bill legislation? You know, we expect that the bill will be marked up in Congress so or in, in committee, so basically voted out of committee in advance, potentially, the week of February 10th. And what we know at the top line from reviewing it and from other comments that we've heard is that it's perceived as being more friendly to hospitals and physicians than some of the other proposals that would have set geographic medians, because as Rich mentioned, it relies on a on an arbitration process as a backstop if the plan and provider can't sort of amongst themselves figure out what an equitable rate is when services are provided to patients in certain covered situations. And those covered situations would be one, if it's an emergency and the patient ends up in an out-of-network emergency department, that would be covered. Two, if I, as a patient, am receiving care from an in-network hospital or facility, but happen to be treated also by an out-of-network provider, so classic example is anesthesiologist. Or three, if I end up out-of-network as a result of faulty information from the health plan, so inaccurate provider directory. A couple of other interesting things in the rule that I think are worth noting. The draft legislation includes a requirement that health plans provide an advance explanation of benefits for scheduled services to their members at least three days in advance. And that would include things like the out-of-pocket amount that the plan or the the member would be responsible for and where they are relative to their deductible. Uh, It would put some relatively strenuous requirements around uh, health plans to make sure that their network directories are up-to-date or as up-to-date as possible. And then for hospitals, it would require them to provide patients who are uninsured or electing to pay cash with a good faith cost estimate in advance of scheduled services. And in instances where the estimate provided to the patient differed greatly from the actual amount that the the care cost, the patient would have access to to a mediation process to resolve the bill. So a lot of uh, high-level and far-reaching components to this legislation, and um, I guess we'll see how it ends up coming together or competing with uh, these other approaches to surprise bills in this Congress, right? Yeah, we will. And I, I ultimately do think that, at least on the House side, they should be able to get to a compromise bill. It seems that Speaker Pelosi has indicated an interest in mediating some type of arrangement um, here now, whether they can reconcile that with the Senate version will be worth watching. 
you know, the, the D date on this, at least according to folks in DC, is that May 22nd is when a number of extenders expire. And so it would have to be part of a legislation package that would be passed by then. Otherwise, this risks sort of getting lost in the wash with, with the fact that this is an election year and sort of Congress after a certain point tends to grind to a halt because members are out campaigning and no one wants to take contentious votes before an election. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that one as it moves along. And uh, let's see, another news development we're tracking here is a story on the Trump administration's Medicaid fiscal accountability proposed rule. This uh, recently closed its public comment period, and some hospital advocates have raised concerns that it could cut up to $50 billion a year from the Medicaid program. So, Chad, what are the keys to know about this, uh, this large rule and, and where it's going? The genesis of this was some work from the OIG sort of raising the need for transparency into additional payments that weren't sort of fee-for-service type payments. And I think the administration really sort of overstepped the OIG's recommendation and has, has proposed some relatively onerous requirements that would sort of have reduced the amount of funding. So one of the examples would be is that it really focuses on intergovernmental transfers or IGTs. And so one of the things that has members concerned is that historically teaching hospitals that are state entities have been able to contribute funds to the, to the state that become part of the Medicaid dollars that then get matched by the federal government because the, the revenue that comes into the teaching hospital that then gets transferred to the state that then gets used, used for Medicaid payments, it's all technically state dollars. However, the, the proposed rule would sort of put a crimp on that and would certainly decrease what states could get matched from the federal government. I think that's ultimately one of the concerns among many that have been raised through this rule. Well, also another item we will be tracking closely and see how that ends up playing out. But in the meantime, thank you for all the insight today, Chad, and uh, thanks again for joining us on the segment. My pleasure, Rich. As always, good chatting with you. Of course, you can also keep up with the latest legal and policy developments related to healthcare finance on our news page at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. Is your organization a high performer in revenue cycle? Earn the recognition you deserve with a MAP award from HFMA. My name's Christy Pahanage. I'm the Associate Vice President of Revenue Management Operations at Geisinger. We pride ourselves on the MAP Award. Having received it 12 times, Geisinger takes a lot of pride in our results. Our team is very dedicated to the metrics, looking at what's getting measured and making sure that we're able to deliver results for the organization. Find out more about HFMA's MAP Award by visiting HFMA dot org slash map award. For the last several months, U.S. economists have been talking about the possibility of recession within the next few years. Only time will tell whether any of these predictions will come true, but as everything ebbs and flows, it's pretty safe to say an economic downturn is inevitable at some point. My guest today, Anish Krishna, a partner at McKinsey & Company, says the crucial thing is not to predict, but to prepare, because the implications for healthcare organizations could be different from recessions of the past. 
I've seen several articles lately saying that an economic downturn is coming soon, but it's difficult to pinpoint when. But we all know the pendulum swings both ways. And at some point, this is something we'll have to deal with in this country and in the healthcare industry. So my question is, how can healthcare organizations begin to plan for something that they know is coming, but they don't know when or what the effects will be? That's a great question. And, you know, we are right now uh, in 2020 sitting in the longest expansionary phase uh, in the last 50 years. So those kind of concerns obviously are quite natural. I would say that any organization can prepare for a potential recession. And uh, we've actually done some research on it. Uh, We looked at the last recession. We evaluated about 1,500 publicly listed companies in North America and, and in Europe and looked at their performance before a recession, during a recession, and after a recession. And within that, we identified the top quintile in terms of total return to shareholders within their respective sectors. And then we looked at what did the companies do and when they did it. So when we looked at that data, we learned that they fundamentally focused on doing three things. Uh, These are the resilient companies. I would say any healthcare organization that is looking to be resilient, that is looking to come out stronger out of any potential recession that might happen this year or later should consider doing. The, the first thing these resilient companies did at the start of the downturn and after was to really focus on uh, strengthening their balance sheet. So when we looked at the debt to capital ratios, the resilience had a significant difference and their ratios actually decreased while that of the non-resilience increased during a downturn. Uh, And even in the recovery phase, the resilience were able to slightly increase their uh, debt to capital ratio just because they had a strong balance sheet. So that's the first action I would say uh, that anybody should consider, and particularly in healthcare where we have a lot of not-for-profit organizations uh, who do have a big portion of their income coming from investment portfolios, which do tend to get impacted during uh, a down cycle. The second action uh, I would say that healthcare organizations should consider is moving faster and harder on productivity while preserving the growth capacity. So we looked at, you know, the operating costs of these uh, resilient companies, and we saw that before a downturn and during the recovery, their operating costs dropped relative to, you know, the baseline right before, uh, and relative to the non-resilient, there was even a much bigger difference. And then when we looked further into the operating costs, we realized that resilience focused a lot on reducing their cost of goods sold. So they really focused on those efficiencies while they preserved the sales and you know growth capacity so that they could still grow during the downturn. And so when, when you put those three actions together and then you look at the data in terms of revenue, revenues as well as their margins, you, you see that uh, resilient companies start outperforming right before a downturn, and then by the end of the recovery phase, there is a yawning gap between the resilience and the non-resilience, and it's, it's largely based out of those three actions. In some materials that I read from McKinsey, which we will um, link when we post this episode, you say that um, with changes in the industry since the last recession in 08, 09, the potential implications could be different for healthcare than they've experienced before. Can you talk about a few of those potential implications? So I think, you know, before we go into the potential implications, I, I just want to recap some of the things that are different in the healthcare industry since the last recession, because that then feeds into uh, how some of the implications might be different. So uh, a few things, you know, we have over 30 states that have expanded into Medicaid 
you know, since the last recession and since when the Affordable Care Act was uh, put into place. That extended the eligibility to almost 13, you know, plus million adults uh, as of a year ago, and that might have even increased. We also saw that over 50% of payer revenues are now attributed to the government business, both Medicare and Medicaid. And that is a big change from what it used to be historically, where commercial business was a big, much bigger part of their portfolio. We're also seeing that about two-thirds of the enrollees in the individual market uh, receive financial assistance. The individual market didn't exist the way we see it today before the last recession. Uh, and also, uh, there's a high level of subsidy and financial assistance that's happening. Uh, we've also seen meaningful consolidation in the industry. We, you know, almost about 800 deals have been announced since 2008, involving about 1,800 hospitals. So you've seen the delivery side of the healthcare ecosystem consolidating. Uh, we also see uh, a third of the people with employer coverage now are on high deductible health plans. And this was fewer than one-tenth in 2008. So that's a big difference as well. And then we've also seen uh, digital health come up in a big way. So over 30% year-over-year growth and venture funding in this space. So when you put all of this together, which is very different from, you know, over a decade ago when we had the last recession, you know, we did analysis and our research would indicate a few things are likely to happen. One is we are going to see coverage shifts. So we are going to see, you know, depending on the scenario, about four to 10 million people, you know, losing commercial coverage. Uh, and this obviously depends on the type of recession we have. But, you know, the two uh, bookends that we modeled was if it's like the 2000, 2001 versus the 2008, 2009 recession. So those are the two, you know, the low and the high ends of it. So that's about four to 10 million lives coming out. Now, typically, these would have entered the uninsured pool. You know, given we are in a Medicare expansion world post ACA, uh, three to seven million of these adults, uh, these these individuals would go into Medicaid, or so that's at least you know uh, the projection. And then about one to three million would uh, likely go into the uninsured pool. We'll, we'll also see puts and takes on the individual market, but you know on an aggregate level, minimal impact. So uh, and, and then Medicare would largely remain the same. Uh, it, it's not so much prone to this kind of funding, with the exception of maybe there'll be a greater demand for zero premium products. So when you put this together, we feel that we uh, our analysis would indicate that uh, there will be significant state budgetary pressures. So uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. You know, Medicaid as a percentage of the state's general revenue could increase by up to three to ten percent uh, relative to uh, levels last year, and and that that that. You know, different states are going to respond differently depending on how much waiting their funds they have. At the same time, when we uh, translate that shift in cover lives into the impact on the payer side, you, we expect about a 5 to 20% drop in their EBITDA from, from current levels. Uh, when you look at the, on the provider side, that, that's about 5 to 30%. So on the, on the higher end, it's a little bit more. And the ra- reason for that is, uh, you know, while a lot of these commercial lives that, that come out of the commercial, you know, coverage are not going to go all to uninsured, a significant portion is going to go to Medicaid, but Medicaid rates, as we know, for most providers uh, are barely at break even, I think. So that's going to create some financial strain uh, on the provider system. So those are, you know, some of the um, larger uh, impacts. And there are, you know, a couple more that I'd want to highlight. So, you know, typically we see that utilization increases in employer-sponsored plans before a recession. So you see a slight increase. 
And and while we're going to see the same trend because people tend to see the writing on the wall, they tend to get some of their elective care and preventive care out of the way. And so you see a little bit of a spike in utilization. That is going to be subdued relative to 2008 and 2009 because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, one in three lives are now in a high deductible plan. And so if you're in a high deductible plan, you know, it's not going to cause you to do more of the elective or the preventive stuff because you still are going to pay that out of pocket. And and that's also an important in, indicator for providers to recognize because you could misrecognize that as uh, as if you're, you're seeing a growth in volume. And then if you start scaling up, um, you know, your clinicians and so forth, uh, you could end up with a lot of overcapacity at the other end of it. And then uh, the the only other, you know, piece, you know, I would highlight, which I think I mentioned a little bit, is earnings uh, risk is uh, relatively a little bit higher for providers than payers. But but more than that, I would say the dynamics between payers and providers have also changed, you know, since the last recession. And if you just look at the market concentration, you know, at the MSA level, that looks very different than it did 10, 11 years ago. So there are some markets where payer concentration has increased, and there are some markets where provider concentration has increased. And I think the interplay between the two entities um, is going to vary based on that. So that's also going to be different from the last uh, last time we had a recession. In two weeks, I'll be revisiting this interview with Krishna, and he'll share some concrete steps healthcare organizations should take in preparing for an economic downturn. In the meantime, if you'd like to see more from McKinsey regarding this topic, take a look at our show notes where we'll link their literature. Enabling consumerism is more important than ever. Find out how well your revenue cycle is meeting consumers' needs and get actionable advice on how you can take it to the next level. Hear takeaways on how to improve performance from HFMA's new consumerism maturity model. Join us for the HFMA Revenue Cycle Conference in New Orleans on March 30th through April 1st and earn up to 14 CPE credits. Learn more at hfma.org rcc. Artificial intelligence is gaining traction as a disruptive force in healthcare but many industry leaders don't yet have a good understanding of it. For today's Fast Five, we have five things finance leaders can do to learn more about AI. Improve readiness for AI through enhanced data quality. A data governance workgroup can help clarify how data is defined, captured, structured, transferred, cleaned, and presented. Understand what AI can and cannot do. Today's AI does not have the ability to solve problems or make judgments under uncertainty. Create data translator and business architect roles. These roles can help shape the organization's AI strategy. Refine data privacy, security, and ethics policies. As patients become more aware of the risks related to healthcare organizations providing their data to third parties, those healthcare organizations should consider updating their existing policies. Leverage finance's strength in decision support. Roles in finance could see massive change as a result of AI use. Healthcare organizations have an opportunity to narrow the focus of appropriate use cases, convene collaborative multidisciplinary teams, standardize and organize data, define success measures, and set the stage for better performance, service, and outcomes. The information for this Fast Five came from Artificial Intelligence, Five Realities for Financial Leaders by Pam Arlotto in the February issue of HFM. 
Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer, and on next week's episode, you can hear his interview with Matt Cox from Spectrum Health. If you'd like to get in touch with me or anyone else on our team, you can contact us at podcast at hfma.org.